to Ruth chapter 3. Can you make, yes, there we go. Now y'all can see me and I can see you. Ruth chapter 3. So um, usually we read the entire text, but as we've been going through the book of Ruth, we haven't been doing that because it's so lengthy. So uh, we're just going to read the first five verses together. We're going to study the whole chapter, Ruth chapter 3. I'm going to catch you up if you hadn't been here. But if you have a Bible, you can open up to Ruth, eighth book of the Bible. Uh, you get the Pentateuch, the first five books, and then after that, Joshua judges Ruth. So if you can't find it, it's right there in the Old Testament. Uh, and so I'm going to uh, start by reading verses 1 through 5. If you are able, we'd love for you to stand. We stand when we read God's Word together. After I read it, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. And as you're saying, thanks be to God, we've said this numerous times, of course, you're thanking the Lord that He'd be so kind to give us His Word. But at the same time, uh, let that thanks be to God that you say uh, be for you a time where you're saying yes to the Lord, all the things that he teaches you, all the things that he wants you to learn from this and apply from, to this in your life, you're saying, you're saying yes to as you say, thanks be to God. So I'm reading verses one through five, starting at Ruth chapter three, verse one. <clears throat> then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek rest for you that it may go well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with, <clears throat> excuse me, with whose young woman you were? See, he was winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he'll tell you what to do. And she replied, all you say, I will do. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that as we study uh, Ruth chapter 3 today, um, we will... Uh, be challenged to want to continually trust you and uh, believe in your sovereignty in all, of all things. But more than anything, Lord, that we would see uh, Christ, that we would understand that Boaz is a picture of Christ and that our hearts would rejoice for what Christ has done for us uh, by being our Redeemer. So, Lord, I pray that uh, for those that are believers in Christ, that their hearts would be uh, drawn towards Jesus. And for those that aren't believers, the same. Their hearts would be drawn towards Jesus and that they would become believers this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't been here, I'll, I'll give you a quick review. Uh, the book of Ruth took place in the time period of the Judges. Uh, and the time period of the Judges was not the greatest of all time periods for the people of Israel. Uh, during this particular time, most of the Israelites just did whatever they wanted. They did what was right in their own eyes, as it says in Judges 21-25. There are a few exceptions. And the people that we're looking at here, specifically in this chapter, Boaz and Ruth, are the exceptions of the uh, Israelites. Well, Ruth is a Moabite. I'll tell you about that in a second. But... Uh, but on the whole, most of the people did not live as, as people that, that loved God uh, and wanted to do what the Lord said. So uh, we see in chapter 1, <clears throat> uh, this lady Naomi, she was married to Elimelech, and there was a famine in the area. And so they decided to leave Bethlehem, which is incidentally called the house of bread, and it was the promised land. And if there ever was a famine and the Lord's going to bring back blessing, you should probably stay in what is known as the promised land. But they don't. They travel about 50 miles away east. Anytime you see east, you should always think that's not good in the Bible, to Moab, and outside of the promised land, outside of Israel. And when they go there, uh, the husband Elimelech dies. Their two sons, Malon and Kilion, both die. Uh, and so Naomi's left with, they got married while, the two sons got married while they were there. And so Naomi's left with the two daughters-in-law and 
she's going to take care of him, but she decides, I'm not going to stay here in Moab. I'm going to go back home. And so as she's going back home, one of the daughter-in-laws decides to go back to Moab, but one daughter-in-law follows her. Her name's Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite, which means she's not familiar with the Israelite customs. She doesn't know Yahweh, who he is, and she grew up as an idolater and as a pagan. Well, on the way back, uh, despite Naomi's best efforts of trying to make her stay in Moab, Naomi, uh, Ruth comes back and on the walk back, she gets saved. She becomes a follower of God. She wants to follow God. She says, your God's going to be my, my God. And they come into town. Naomi's been gone maybe a good part of a decade. And as she's been gone a good part of a decade, she's excited. Well, she's not excited. The people are excited to see her, but she's not so excited. She said, I went away empty and I've, I've, I went away full and I've come back empty. I had a husband and I had uh, sons and now I come back with nothing besides my daughter-in-law and I've come back empty. Don't call me uh, Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And so that was kind of the, the, the first part of chapter one. Well, the next day or so, uh, Ruth decides she's going to go get them some food because they're hungry. And she goes and takes initiative, goes out into the field and starts working the field. And there's a guy who happens to own the field. Uh, and as he owned the field, notices her. Now, the fields were set up to where, let's just pretend this, this is a field here, uh, where they would normally just harvest in the middle and they would leave the outside edges of the field for anybody that was marginalized, the poor, to be able to come and glean, glean from the fields and take back home. It wasn't stealing. The Lord had provided this in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 25, Leviticus 25. If you were somebody who was poor, you could come and kind of just take from the edges. And so Ruth... Uh, She's, she doesn't own this field, but she's kind of taken from the edges. And the landowner sees her, a Moabite, standing out in Israel. And he's asking, who is, this, who is this lady right here? He's kind of taking some kind of interest. He takes an interest in her. He says that you can do that. And then he has a little mealtime at noon. And he shares with his coworkers and her, gives her some good food and says, you don't even have to do on the edges anymore. You can just go right in the good part and get some of the good stuff. And she, after one day... Uh, gets about 30 pounds, two weeks worth or so, I think it was 30 pounds uh, of, of grain and brings it back. And when she walks in, she's telling Naomi, her mother-in-law, everything that happened. And Naomi said, hey, you know what? Uh, that guy Boaz, he's a relative of my husband Elimelech, uh, which means you could be redeemed. He's a goel. You could be redeemed. You could actually get married to this guy and the Lord could take care of us. Well, uh, she said, stay, stay close to that field. Keep going to that field. And the guy, the landowner, his name was Boaz. Boaz told her to stay in that field and stay with his young women uh, that he had in that field just for her protection. And so as we finished the, the, the chapter last week, um, we can see in, in verse 23, she stayed close with the young women, gleaning in that field until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. This means about six to eight weeks had gone by. And as the six and eight weeks had gone by, that was it. There wasn't any more much interaction with Boaz and Ruth and we're kind of left on the edge of our seats. Uh, what's going on? And as, as that time ends, most of the workers would go back and there would be little opportunity for Ruth and Boaz to see each other anymore. And so Naomi knows this. Uh, she knows that the time's getting towards the end and she knows that uh, she knows that Boaz the landowner could be a kinsman redeemer for Ruth even though she's a Moabite and so she's going to take matters into her own hands now there's lots of debate on whether this is a smart decision or a bad or a great decision and the commentators are all over the place on how appropriate I mean 
as I said last week, this is not advice that I would give my daughter. Not advice at all that I would give my daughter. And we, we read it here as we're seeing in, uh, in verse 1, the advice that she gives. Verses 1 through 5 tells us kind of the, the, uh, the advice that happens. But there's, before we get into the text, there's a lot of things that we can learn uh, bet- between Boaz and Ruth and this inter- interaction on the threshing floor that they're going to have this week. Uh, and it's about integrity. Ruth is not a Moabite anymore. She's not a, uh, an idolater, not a pagan anymore. She's a follower of Yahweh and she wants to walk in the path that honors God. And in the same way, Boaz is not a tickle, uh, typical, not tickle. He's not getting tickled. Well, I guess his feet kind of a little cold, but he's not getting a, his, he's not a typical Israelite uh, living in the period of the judges who did what was right in their own eyes. Instead, chapter two, verse one tells us that he is a worthy man. He's a really, really God-fearing, God-honoring man, and he wants to honor God with his entire life. And so we're going to see how that uh, is put on display here in chapter 3, just how an ama- much of an amazing guy he is. So the, the wheat and barley harvest are coming to an end. Uh, the mother-in-law, Naomi's getting a little bit nervous. She knows that they're not going to see each other anymore. She's like, okay, it's time to move. It's time to do something. I've got a plan, Ruth. This is what you're going to do. Uh, I want you to follow it, and, and I want you to do it. Verse 1, then Naomi said to her mother-in-law, my daughter. Now, my daughter is in the beginning in 3.1 and 3.18. Uh, and so the chapter is bookends and fancy language. In the theological world, this is called an inclusio. That's just for fun. You can call it bookends. It's a little bit easier to understand. But basically, it helps us understand how to view this chapter when you see uh, repetition in chapters. And so we're seeing my daughter and my daughter. And it's a highly significant phrase as she's been called my daughter, even by Boaz in chapter 2, and expresses the relationship between the two women. From Naomi's perspective, it's laying the foundation of why Naomi gives this scandalous, risky advice to Ruth. And as it ends, we're left with the question, okay, you're her daughter-in-law, but are you going to be officially a daughter of the family too? What's going to happen? Are you going to be in? So we see the bookends of my daughter. And she says, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? So let's go ahead and put up uh, the first point here, or the first outline of the chapter. So the marriage proposal is the title of the sermon. And you can go ahead and put up number one. Uh, and so we have Naomi's plan. And as we're getting to Naomi's plan, uh, we're going to see uh, <clears throat> it has little, kind of three little points. We're going we're gonna to understand it. The first one is go ahead and put up A, uh, and it's going to tell us what the problem is. The problem is, my daughter-in-law, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? She's concerned about her well-being. She had prayed for her rest in 1-9. And even Orpah in chapter 1, verse 9, when she tells them to go back, she had said a prayer of rest, and she wants Ruth and and even Orpah, her other daughter-in-law, uh, but especially Ruth now to have rest. And so she's seeking Ruth for rest here because she knows that if Boaz marries Ruth, she will find, she will find rest. And so rest here is a, is a security and a tranquility that women found in ancient Israel and they longed for and they, expect, they usually could find this and expected to find it in a loving home of a loving husband. And so she's wanting her to have rest. And the same kind of rest, not exactly, but same kind of rest is offered to us. Through Jesus, Jesus offers us the same kind of rest where we can have rest in the home of our loving husband, uh, Jesus. He says it in this way in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. And so in the same way, Jesus offers us great gospel rest from all of the struggling of trying to find our way back to him. If we try to do it on our own instead, he says, just come to me and I'll be your bride or your husband. He gave his life for us so that we can also uh, find eternal gospel rest. And in the same kind of way, not exactly, but in the same kind of way, Naomi is seeking this rest for her. And she said, should I not seek it? Should I not seek it? So it's inferred that she should seek this rest. And so uh, Naomi's sole purpose in giving her this scandalous advice is for the welfare of Ruth. Although uh, it's it's a little little shaky. So you see here in verse 1, I want to do this. Now, it's not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were. See, he was winnowing tonight at the threshing floor. So if A's the problem under Naomi's plan, she gives us the facts. And there's really two of them. Uh, that's part B. You can go ahead and put up B. She gives us the facts here in the plan. One, Boaz is a, this is, says relative. It's a kinsman redeemer. He's a goel. He's the one that can redeem you. Um, he's a relative that can serve as a redeemer for Ruth. And so that's the first fact is that he's a, he's a goel. The second fact is that tonight, since it's the end of these harvests, he's going to be at the threshing floor. And so that's the, that's the second fact is that he's going to be at the threshing floor. Now, at the end of those harvests, it was time to go to the threshing floor. So I'll give you a little bit of idea. They usually did this at night. It was kind of a, a hard surface where they would get a pitchfork and they would throw the wheat and everything up in the air. The wheat was heavy, so it would fall and the chaff, and the chaff would be blown by the wind. And they would do this for a while all night there in the, in the evening at the, uh, at the threshing floor. And so they would be doing that process. It would go on for a while. And as that went on, as they eventually blew all the chaff away, they would have their wheat, they would have their barley, and they would lay down, and they would go to sleep there because it was kind of the last night, and they they laid there beside it so no one would steal it. Now, um, the threshing floor, it was also a a time of celebration at night. It was a time where uh, there was also some scandalous activity that would happen. So the threshing floor wasn't known, as it says in Hosea 9.1, that it wasn't known uh, as just a, this great place. It was normally associated with immoral behavior, such as prostitution. And so it was a communal place shared by lots of members of the villages as they worked. And there was places of joy and celebration as they went into the night. There was much drinking, etc. And after all the work was done, they'd lay down. And the prostitutes knew uh, that this is where the men are who just made a bunch of money. And so I can go down there and I can lay down with one of them and I can uh, seduce one of them and I can make some money as well. So the, uh, the, the, the threshing floor itself in ancient Israel was a scandalous place. So we're, we're walking into the scandalous advice. She says, what you need to do is just go down to the threshing floor. And then what she's, the way that she's supposed to approach him is in the same way that a prostitute would, which is why it's, again, very scandalous. And so uh, this is the backdrop in the environment that Naomi says, Ruth, you should go to the threshing floor tonight. That's what you should do. And then further, she gives her the exact prescription of what she should do. You can put up C. Here's what you need to do. Now, instead of Ferguson says, writing a personal column in the Bethlehem Star and writing, there's a single Moabite woman, widowed, childless, with her mother-in-law and seeks to do uh, well with a great Bethlehem businessman with view to marriage and you must love the mother-in-law. Instead of at, putting that ad in the Bethlehem Star, she comes up with another plan. Let's go to the, to the threshing floor where the prostitutes are in the middle of the night. Find, after he's drunk a little bit and he's really, really happy, lay down, get right up next to him and say, what do you want me to do next? Like, that's not the best advice. It's not, I would never tell my daughter uh, whenever, uh, if she liked a guy, to find him in the middle of the night if he's camping, go into his tent, sneak down into his little sleeping bag with him and whisper at him, what should I do next? 
um, because that's usually not going to go well. Um, for most men, you know which men that's not going to go well with, the ones that breathe. And so, uh, so that's, not, that's not great advice. That's not great advice at all. Uh, I would say it's actually quite risky advice. And so you can see in verses three and following, she gives her seven little steps. Take a bit. Now, I, I find this interesting because um, we, we talk about how the innocence of Ruth. Ruth had been married. I mean, Ruth is 25. She'd been married. She'd probably been married a decade. Um, and so she understands, I think, all these advice, advices that she's being told. Take a bath. Put on some perfume. One writer dubbed this perfume the, the Midnight Moabite. Um, <laughs> put on some perfume. Uh, take your cloak. Uh, he had always seen her in her work outfit and her work clothes with her hair up and dirty nails. And she's like, you need to not look like you always do. You need to put on some perfume, take a bath, put on your nice cloak because it's probably going, to be, probably going to be cold there in the middle of the night. Go down there and you can see, don't make yourself known until the man has finished eating and drinking. So go to the threshing floor, the scandalous threshing floor. Wait until he eats and drinks and his heart is merry, as it says in 7, till he's a little bit happy. Um, and as he's a little bit happy, carefully Notice where he lays down. Remember, it's not like our city where we can kind of see still at night. This is dark, dark. It's dark, dark, right? Unless they have some candles out or some torches or something, it's pretty dark. Carefully observe where he lays down. Don't accidentally pick the wrong guy. That'd be, good. That'd be bad. Um, uncover his feet. Uh, notice what she says here. This is pretty amazing here in verse 4. Verse 4. Uh, when he observe where he lies down, then go uncover his feet and lie down. Go and cover his feet and lie down. Now, the three words, uncover, lie down, and feet, are all three words that are used euphemistically in the Hebrew Old Testament. And they're all three of those words, all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, which lie down, feet, and uncover are charged with sexual overtones. And so there's much debate here about the advice that she's being given. At worst, it could be that Naomi's advice is very risky, and she's telling Ruth to do something very, very immoral, just to trap him, get him in there. Or at best, it's an innocent, nonverbal gesture uncovering his feet. And it's just that. And it customarily could mean requesting marriage and something that Ruth will eventually verbally communicate. So that's kind of that at best and at worst. And, you know, where are we on the spectrum of what's written in the text? Now, as I said, I wouldn't give my daughter this advice. Um, and I, by the way, just as a side note, uh, a girl going to a guy in doing this is a little strange. A guy, if you ever do this to a girl, you're going to jail. That's it. It's just done. Um, but in the advice I wouldn't give to my daughters, uh, I would just say, why don't you just go during the day, you know, at noon when the sun's out and there's lots of people around and there's no problems that could actually happen. But nevertheless, she, after that, she says, after you uncover his feet, wait for Boaz's instructions. Uh, ask him what to do next, basically. And so uh, since Boaz and and Naomi had presumably never met. Boaz and Naomi, the mother-in-law, had presumably never met each other. Seemingly, they knew each other, but never met. Ferguson says, do we find these, these uh, words expressed with, with deep confidence in the moral and spiritual, spiritual integrity of Boaz? Or do they suggest that even if moral compromise is involved, the end will justify the means and Boaz's help will be secured by fair means or foul? Well, we presume that that Naomi must know Boaz as a good guy from the words of Ruth and just from his general kind of knowledge because he was in the family of Elimelech, that this won't go bad. And so Ruth says, and she replied, all that you say, 
I will do. Ruth has courage. Ruth has loyalty to Naomi and she demonstrates it by saying that she's going to do everything that she's told. Now, it's a huge gamble. This plan's a very big risk and it's going to, but it will pay off and it'll cause Boaz not to delay anymore. There's no, going to be no more delaying. Six to eight weeks has gone by and she knows that Boaz is a redeemer and it's time for him to act. It's time for him to do something. She's letting him have the decision here. Now, Boaz could do something crazy here. He could, uh, he could think that Ruth is just petitioning him, petitioning him and take her up on it. She could think that Ruth is petitioning him and be off-put by it and tell her to get out of here. Um, or he could think that Ruth is asking for marriage and respond favorably or lots of other things. That's at least, that's at least three of them. Uh, but we do know this. The text has told us that Boaz is not just a normal guy. 2-1 tells us that he's a worthy man and that he would not take advantage of Ruth in this particular time. And so we shouldn't interpret it necessarily as an opportunity that they're going to definitely give into sin. Um, and I should just say, uh, both of them are godly. So a lot of times, uh, most commentators I read puts all of the credit and all of the blame if it goes well or it goes bad on Boaz. But let's just be, be honest here. Um, we don't need to give Boaz all the credit. Had something happened, it wouldn't have just been Boaz's decision alone. It, it takes two, right? And so uh, he doesn't get all the blame or all the credit. Ruth is a strong thinking woman. She's been married before, so she understands what's going on. She's not a novice. Uh, she had to at least been 25. So just like if something happened, Ruth would have also probably got the blame with Boaz. She should also be given the credit with Boaz. Um, Boaz was described as a worthy man in 2.1. Ruth is described as a worthy woman in 3.11. And so they're both godly people. And so both of them are godly. Both of them get the credit, not just Boaz gets the credit here. Uh, but the application as we look at the close of verses 1 through 5, where we see Naomi's plan, is this. Ruth is trusting Naomi. Naomi is trusting Boaz. And ultimately, Boaz and Ruth and Naomi are all trusting God. And so we're, we're pushed towards the challenge that we need to trust God with the exact same faith that they trust God. We should trust God. He is totally trustworthy. In a lot of ways, Boaz is emblematic of our, of, of our Lord and Savior, our kinsman, great kinsman redeemer, Jesus, that we can trust him. Jesus is a worthy man. He is, an, he is altogether righteous and we can trust him as well. And so as we see this plan in one through five, uh, being given, uh, we're pushed to be a, the kind of people that would trust, which brings us into number two. Uh, you can go ahead and put up number two. That first one was Naomi's plan. Six through 15 tells us Ruth's implementation of the plan. And it really has two parts. Uh, it's the evening to midnight is part one, and then midnight to the morning is the second one. So uh, whenever we're going through this particular chapter, the writer of this, of this book is subtly trying to let us notice that there's an underlying narrative that's, that's playing. Uh, and that is, uh, he's wanting us to, to understand that Boaz and Ruth are not going to uh, replay the sinful foolishness of the great Moabite father Lot. So Lot in Genesis 19 um, was a man that the Lord was kind to uh, and his daughters got him drunk, which he called daughters, and one of them lay with him. And whenever she did, she gave birth to uh, Moab, which is where all the Moabs come from. Ruth was a Moab. And in the same way, it's, it's weird because you have Boaz, who's older than her, who calls her daughter. Everybody calls Ruth daughter, and he's going to drink here at night, and she's going to come with, 
come to him at night. And will he do the same sinful act that happened in Genesis 19? No, he won't. And so as we're seeing, there's a, there's a backdrop underlying kind of narrative that's going to happen where Lot drinks too much and Boaz is, is going to drink. He's not going to drink too much. He's Lot's seduced by both of his daughters and thus the Moabite people begin. Uh, and th there's a name that keeps happening to Ruth, which is daughter. And so uh, he will drink and be merry, but unlike Lot, he won't pass out, and further, he won't be like Lot and sin, at Moabite, uh, sin with the Moabite Ruth instead of a redemption of sorts for the Moabite people, specifically really through Ruth, is playing out. And uh, there's a great redemption that's going to happen with Ruth, which means Ruth will be the great, 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 lots of greats, grandma, I think 25 greats of Jesus. So um, that's because redemption is being brought through to the Moabites, specifically to Ruth, and she gets to play a great part in bringing about Jesus. Uh, so here we see in verse 6, uh, where we're going to see, you can go ahead and put up A, there it goes, evening to midnight. Uh, and this evening to midnight is a series of kind of conversations back and forth between Ruth and Boaz. You have Ruth and Boaz, uh, then Ruth, and then Boaz again. So we see here in verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commended her, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So uh, she follows Naomi's plan. She comes softly. This softly is really like with stealth, uh, like, like a ninja coming there, like super stealth. This is the same ver verb. Uh, if you remember, we went through Judges and Judges 4 when J.L. came up to the man with the tent peg like a little ninja and stabbed him in the forehead. Same verb, uh, but way different ending. Um, but nevertheless, she came softly to him. And then in verse eight and nine, you can see the response. So this is what she does. She goes down and she goes to the heap of grain. She came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, in verses eight and nine, this is Boaz's little response. Uh, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold. So again, we're at dark, dark here. And he's like, even though I know there's something here, there's a figure of some kind of woman here and I'm not sure who it is. A woman lay at his feet and he said, who are you? <laughs> nevertheless he was a little bit nervous so he was startled or awakened probably because his feet were cold and uh but he notices as he wakes up he he's never been married not used to having people lay around him lay beside him etc and so he's awakened uh probably not by Ruth but just because something startled him in his sleep he was cold he rose over behold whoa this is dark who is this and he was scared and he didn't know what was going on uh he knew the history of the threshing floor and probably wanted no part of that and he says who are you and this is what Ruth says to him at 9b uh, and following. She says, um, she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. I am Ruth, your servant. Now, remarkably, she calls herself his servant. This is a step up from 2.13. And 2.13, she said, I'm not even worthy to be one of your servants. Now, she takes a little step up here. And she says, uh, in 2.13, I wasn't good enough to even be one of your servants. But now she says, I am your servant. Uh, and in the middle of the night, she comes to him and says something extraordinary even after that. First, she says that I am your servant, which isn't necessarily amazingly extraordinary. But the next thing she says is quite extraordinary. And by the way, you should notice the next thing sh she says is not following the advice of Naomi. Naomi said, just go up there and lay down and wait for him to tell you what to do. She, she does that. And he says, who are you? And she said, I'm Ruth. And then she's supposed to just say, now what do I do? That's it. But this is what she says. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. 
Now this breaks away from the advice of Naomi. Naomi did not say to do this. Now again, euphemistically spread your wings has been, uh, has charged sexual overtones in the Old Testament. And so some people will say, man, is that what she's saying? That's not what she's saying. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's certainly racy. Uh, the writers wanting us to be, whoo, what is happening here? This is nerve wracking. And so uh, she did not follow Naomi's advice. And then, even more so, this is why it's extraordinary. She seizes the initiative and then turns the question and asks, and he asks her to, um, to, she's putting it back on him saying, you have to have responsibility here now. What are you going to do? And then when she says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer, this is Ruth requesting Boaz to marry her. So she's doing the wedding proposal. Now, even today that's strange. Certainly, 3,000 years ago, from a Moabite who's just a peasant girl that's also a woman doing this is extraordinary. It's just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, one, one commentator says, one recognizes immediately on a play on chapter 2, verse 12. On chapter 2, verse 12, uh, where she says, the Lord repay you for what you've done, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz looks at Ruth and says, I know that you're a believer in, in, in God. He's spread his wings over you and you have come to take refuge in his wings. Like, uh, and so we can see that the, the wing interplay that's happening and it served as a metaphor that God had provided and cared for her and that she's a part of the people of, Yah, of, of Israel now. And so the first imp impulse then is to interpret the statement similarly that, that she's saying that. But Ruth is requesting or even demanding in chapter 3 verse 9 that Boaz take her under his wing and assume responsibility and security for her. Uh, in essence, she's challenging Boaz to be the answer of the own invocation that he gave her in 2.12 and to marry her. She says, spread your wing over your servant for your redeemer. She is saying, it's time for you to marry me. Now, you can notice, we've talked about this before. She says, for you are a redeemer. She grounds the reason why he should do it by saying, you're a redeemer. You are a goel. You're my kinsman redeemer. She's putting the issue to him. Even though she's a Moabite, she understands Israel's law completely and their customs and saying, you can be my redeemer. I want you to do it. Now, uh, basically she's saying, um, hey, Boaz, if you like this, you need to put a ring on it. It's time. It's time to get up. It's time to go. Let's do something. Um, and so, but nevertheless, we can see there's a problem. There's a little bit of a problem when she says, you are a redeemer. Boaz is a redeemer. He's not the only redeemer. As a matter of fact, he doesn't have first position as redeemer. Uh, somebody else has first position and he's, he's outside of this. And so uh, he recognizes this. And so just because he is a redeemer doesn't mean it's a done deal. And just because uh, Ruth thinks that it will increase her chances with Boaz, uh, she knows that the other guy can, can marry her first. And so she wants to raise the issue and she wants, to, uh, she wants him to be a redeemer to save her so that she can also support Naomi and Naomi can be taken care of. Now, Boaz is going to respond to her in verse 10 
through 13. And then this 10 through 13, he's going to do really kind of four different things uh, in each little verse, in each four verses. First, he's going to give her a blessing. Then he's going to make a promise. He's going to discuss the little complication that's going on and then give her some reassurance. And so in verse 10, he's going to make the promise. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness, this hesed, greater than the first that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. So in this blessing, it's amazing. Instead of this this midnight Moabite kind of get together, it doesn't turn into some kind of steamy passion session, right? It turns into a worship service. He's giving her blessings. This is worship that's happening, just highlighting for us how amazing these people are. Uh, he, he's, he casts blessings on her. And so in a sort of fashion, the Moabites being shown that she has a good name and she's not going to be like the Moabites. And he says, he blesses her for the kindness that he shows him. Uh, he b- gives blessing and then he says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men. That can also be translated choice men, um, whether rich or poor. Basically what he's saying is he said, uh, you've shown amazing hesed kindness towards me because you've chose me. You are quite attractive, Ruth. Uh, he, Boaz is just stating it like you're quite attractive and you're quite a catch. And I don't think that I'm actually that quite much of a catch uh, because you could ha- you're so good looking. You could go after choice men, rich or poor. Anybody could have you. And even though anybody could have you, you want me. You've shown me a, kind, a kindness and, and amazement. And I'm just absolutely astounded by this. You could have rich guys for their money. You could have poor guys if they were great looking. You could have anybody and you're choosing me. And so you can hear all these encouragements that he's given her and she's kind of blushing like they're so nice Boaz Um, but nevertheless uh, you're choosing me that's amazing and let's just um, take a side note here for a second so ladies single ladies um, you should do the same choose Boaz I'm not saying choose an old man that might not be good looking that's not what I'm saying Choose somebody that's good looking that you're attracted to. Well, you know, that's, that's just common, right? That's, that's obvious. What I'm saying is choose someone that's godly. She's choosing someone who loves the Lord and can provide. You should do the same. That should be number one and number two on your list of things. Um, you should not just choose somebody just because they might be young or choice or good looking. Instead, uh, those things are fine, but... The first thing is, love the Lord and can be a good provider husband for you. And so choose Boaz. Now, not saying, by the way, Boaz isn't frail. He's a strong dude. He gets the job done. He just wasn't, he wasn't young like Ruth. And so uh, how did this blessing happen in the middle middle of the night? The reader is inclined that instead of something tawdry occurring, but blessing happens, the reader's left, we're left to say, how does that happen? Because 99.9 times out of 100, seems like something else would happen, right? How does that happen? The reader's left asking that, and here's why. The reader's inclined to see the hidden hand of God guiding not only the actions of the individuals, but their reactions of the individuals, and even their dispositions, so that in the end, Yahweh's agenda is being fulfilled. God's hand is here in the middle of this midnight threshing floor session. There's no doubt about it. It would have gone sideways without God being there. And so we're left seeing the hand of God here. And so he gives her the blessing. And then he also gives her a promise. In verse 11, he says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. He tells her, I'm going to do what you've requested. 
That's the promise. I'm going to do what you've requested. And then he just adds more, uh, more encouragement. He goes Proverbs 31 on her, literally. Uh, he, he quotes two Proverbs 31 verses where all the people at the gate know that you're a worthy slash noble woman. That's right there in Proverbs 31. And so the way to a woman's heart is tell her she's a Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, even Boaz knows that. And so he says, you're beautiful, but your greatest beauty is not just your outward beauty. It's your inward beauty. It's your godliness. And everybody knows that that's the case. So yes, I'm going to do everything that you said. Um, so that was, the that was the blessing and the promise. But there's a little complication, which you've talked about. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. As I said, he's not the first one. Somebody else can. Boaz will take care of that in chapter 4. And then he gives her this reassurance. Remain tonight and in the morning. This is where it's also a little bit controversial. Remain tonight and in the morning. And if he will redeem you, if this other guy will redeem you, who's nameless, he doesn't, he doesn't redeem Ruth, so he gets to be nameless in the Bible. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. And I think he's like, good, but you know, we don't get to see that. Uh, but if not, if he's not willing to redeem you, then he swears as an oath here, uh, used in the Bible only one other time in 1 Samuel 20, I think it's 20, uh, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so, he tells her to spend the night there. Now, this is for her protection and her integrity to be maintained, uh, not for anything sinful. Because he says, remain here until the morning. And as the, basically, as the sun's going up, you can see that right when the sun's going up, before anybody could recognize her, he sends her. This is the situation I'm in. It would have been better if you hadn't come at the midnight, but you did. But I'm not going to send you out right now for something to happen to you. And right when the sun comes up, before anybody can see you, I'm going to send you and, so that you can maintain integrity as well. And he reassures her, as the Lord lives, an oath that he gives to God, I will definitely do it. So here, Boaz's desire to redeem her is very Christ-like. He wants... Uh, to do it, not because the law might require it, not because the Mosaic law makes a stipulation and he could, he could jump in line and get it done, but because he loves her, but because he loves her. He sees her as uh, someone that loves the Lord and that he wants to be her husband. And this is the exact same redemption that's offered to Jesus. He does it not because the law permits him to save us, and it's permitted through the law of the Lord, if we put our faith in him, that we can be saved because the law permits it now, because he kept the law perfectly. Instead, it's because he loves you. God loves you. That's why he saved you. Not just because he could, or because he had to, or because the law now permits it because he kept the law. The Lord loves you. There's a song by Big Daddy Weave. I know y'all listen to him, but nevertheless, I love it. There's a verse in there, it says this, slash chorus, he said, I am redeemed. You set me free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains, wipe away every stain now because I'm not who I used to be because I don't have to be the old man inside of me because his day is long dead and gone. I've got a new name and a new life and I'm not the same and I hope that will carry me home. I'm redeemed. I am redeemed. This is what's happened for us because the Lord Jesus has lavished his love on us. He gave us a new name. He gave us a new life. And since we've been redeemed, he loves us, and now we have an entirely new thing that's happening going in our, in our lives now as believers. So that was, the, uh, that was the, the evening until the midnight. And now we're going to go midnight to morning in 14 and 15. So you can, uh, good, 14 and 15. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before uh, one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor, wanting to maintain her integrity. Wanting everybody to still understand, because nothing happened, and still wanting everyone to see her as, uh, 
Christ-like and preserve her dignity and her reputation. This is very Christ-like. And he said, bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. So she, she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley. Now, it's ambiguous there, so we don't know six. I mean, it could have six little scoops. It could have been six big, huge things. We don't, we don't know how much it is. But nevertheless, we do know that it's a lot because after he measured six measures of barley, he had to put it on her. <laughs> That's what it says there in verse, uh, what is that, 15. He put it on her. So the guess is that somewhere around 60 to 90 pounds of more, stu- or more food is put onto her, more barley, wheat, whatever it is, um, is put onto her. And he sends her off with this gift. And he sends her off with this gift, not like chapter two, where she still had to glean and still was kind of given permission and she gets to do it. She didn't work for anything. Just total grace being given to her. All this is for you. I want you to take it. No work. This is for you. He gives her this gift. Now, she must have, as, she's, as he's doing this, looked puzzled at him or asked why. Uh, and he says, basically, we know in verse 17, when she goes back to Naomi, he says, uh, I don't want you to go back to Naomi empty-handed. And so she must have looked puzzled at him. And he, she gets, he gives her all this food. Uh, Basically, he doesn't want her to go back empty-handed because Naomi cooked up this scheme. She probably told him the scheme that Naomi cooked up. And he doesn't want her to go back empty-handed to Naomi. He wants to send a gift to Naomi, basically saying, thanks. You know, you, I'm going to take care of you. You did something that, that brought me a wife. Probably not the best idea, but nevertheless, it worked out. And I want to send this food home to you to say, uh, I'm not only going to take care of Ruth. Naomi, I'm going to take care of you as well. I'm going to take care of you. So he gives her this large gift, signaling to Naomi that he understands her and he understands Ruth and he understands their need and his heart is open to them and grace and he's gonna provide both, to both of them. So uh, that's what we see here in that second section of the implementation of the plan through 15. And then we get to verse 16, we see the report. So in verse 16, you can go and put up number three, uh, Ruth comes back and reports to Naomi, verse 16 through 18. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She w- replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. He was going to get it done today. And so uh, if Ruth and Boaz probably didn't get any sleep that night, it's likely that they didn't. Neither did the plan maker, the schemer, uh, Naomi. She probably didn't get any sleep either. And she wants to know what's going on. She wants to know how Naomi fared. And so whenever Ruth is coming back, she looks at her in verse 16 and says, how did you fare, my daughter? This is literally in the Hebrew, who are you, my daughter? Not how did you fare. It's who are you? Saying, are you Mrs. Boaz yet? How did it go? I want to know. Tell me. Are you Mrs. Boaz? Um, and she gives her the full report, told all that had happened. And, and then verse 17, she said, she brought me back these six measures and she said, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi, in the beginning, left Bethlehem full and went to Moab, but she came back empty from Moab because she had lost her husband and her two sons. Boaz and Ruth are now both being used by God for her to be filled again for her to be filled again. Her days of being empty are coming to a close and a journey back to being full again, though differently full, being full again is happening. Boaz is going to marry her and eventually they're going to have a baby and she's going to have a grandson, little Obed. 
And so uh, he says he doesn't want her to go back empty again, but instead wants her to be filled. In the same way, Ruth was empty and comes to Jerusalem, and she's also going to be filled in every way uh, through this precious kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And then she says, <clears throat> she gives her this advice. At, at the beginning of the chapter in 3.1, uh, Naomi is telling her, we, sh we should uh, seek, 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 seek. We got to get, get it and get done. Seek your rest. And now at the end of the chapter in 3.18, she's saying, now we just wait. Trying to get it done. Now it's back to wait, my daughter. Seek my daughter. Wait, my daughter. And then uh, this is so Christ-like. Wait, my daughter, until you learn, learn how the matter turns out. Basically, uh, opposite advice at the beginning of the chapter. You've done all that you can do. Let Boaz go settle it up with the other dude. Uh, and now she says, all you can do now is wait. Ruth, you can just sit back and rest and rest in the work of Boaz who is going to work for you today. As a matter of fact, she's saying, uh, I'm pretty sure, like if you really want a girl, if you really want her as your wife, um, you're not saying like, I'll just get to that next time. That's something I can procrastinate. Naomi understands Boaz and she's like, he's gonna get it done today. Like today it's gonna happen. It's not gonna happen in the next couple days. It's gonna happen today. So what you need to do is rest. Just sit back and you can see here, learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. That'll be chapter four. But let's conclude with this. The redemption that Boaz is offering Ruth is a little hint of the way that God offers salvation to his people. Um, and, and the way that Naomi speaks of resting. Uh, we don't find our rest in Boaz. Instead, we find our rest in Jesus, who is our great kinsman redeemer. The one whom God says, wait now, child, just like Ruth is told, this man, Jesus, will not rest until he goes to earth and cries out, it is finished for us on our behalf. And we know better than Boaz or Ruth or Naomi did because we had Christ Jesus be our kinsman redeemer. Because God made his own son, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus. He didn't spare him at any cost so that he could save us. We can be confident that Jesus will now freely give us everything we need. We have been redeemed by Jesus in a much greater way. I was talking with my daughter this past week. We were talking about Ruth, my oldest daughter, and she, we were talking about uh, this story of Ruth, and she's made this comment. It's just so great. She said, uh, you know, we look at Boaz and how he redeemed Ruth, and we're like, wow, this is unbelievable. How much love he has for, Boaz, for, for Ruth and how he redeem, would redeem her. And she says, Boaz just redeemed one person. Jesus has redeemed millions and millions and millions of people. So how much more then should we be in amazement of the redemption that Jesus offers us? We're, we're amazed at Boaz and Ruth, but we should be even more amazed at the redemption that Jesus offers scores, as Revelation 5 says, myriads upon myriads that are being redeemed by him. So like Ruth, we have been redeemed by Jesus personally. Boaz personally loves Ruth and personally comes and cares for her and redeems her. In the same way, Jesus isn't redeeming us uh, by large groups. He's redeeming us individually. Jesus is coming and redeeming you. His work on the cross was for you specifically.
So like Ruth, we have also been re redeemed personally by Jesus. Also, like Ruth, our Redeemer worked for our redemption. Boaz had to go get something done. Jesus also, he would not rest until he could go to the cross and say, it is finished. Jesus saw our need and we were helpless at his feet and he paid the price for us. He spread his robes of righteousness over us and made us his own. And he did all that the Father asked him to do for us. So, we like Ruth, we've been redeemed personally, and we've also been redeemed by, by a Savior that worked for us. Also, like Ruth, we've been redeemed by, by a Redeemer that loves us. Christ Jesus loves sinners. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us when we were lovely. He didn't die for us whenever we were finally beautiful and sinless. He died for us and he loves us while we were still sinners. As Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So we see three unbelievable things about the redemption. That Jesus redeems us personally. Jesus worked for our redemption and Jesus loves us as our redeemer. Never get over the fact about how much Christ Jesus loved you. The book of Ruth offers us, us just this amazing concrete example of the Lord's personal and particular love for his bride. And this book highlights for us the greatest of all love stories, not Boaz and Ruth, but Jesus' love for his bride. And so therefore, our response should be like the hymn we sang last week, William Cowper. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love will be my theme and shall be till I die. Redeeming love will be my theme and shall be till I die and shall be till I die and shall be till I die. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this amazing redeeming love that you've offered to us through Jesus. We're in awe of just how good you are to us and how kind you are to us. And so Lord, we need to constantly be reminded of how personal you are to us, how much you love us, that you work for our salvation. I pray, Lord, that we would be amazed by this. And as we see Boaz's redemption of Ruth, we remember that this is just a picture of the great redemption we have in Jesus. I pray that you would capture our affections. And if anybody here doesn't know you, that they would come to know Christ this morning and they'd be forgiven of all their sin and that you would redeem them. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to go into the time of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate the redemption that's been given to us. So if you're a believer in Christ...